Okay, so it reminds me about osteomyelitis. Uh, so it's an infection of bone. It can be caused by a trauma. Um, so it can be caused by like a puncture, for example, something from an exogenous source, right? Something from the environment, from outside that got in through the skin and then infected bone. What is the other way that you can get osteomyelitis? Right, hematogenously. So that's really important, hint, hint, because the test is coming up, right? So when we talk about hematogenous spread, it means there's an infection in the blood or an infection somewhere else, and that infection went through the blood and then ended up going into the bone because the bone's very well vascularized, right? The periosteum is very, very well vascularized. So when we talk about septic arthritis, so what are we thinking about when we think septic and then arthritis? What is sepsis? It's basically that you are infected. You have an infection in the blood. When, you're, when you go septic, it's because your immune system's not able to counteract the infection and it is now being promoted throughout your blood and many organs are now gonna start get affected, which could cause death. Sepsis is kind of a big deal. So when you hear about septic, you're thinking some kind of major infection and then when you hear the word arthritis, arthro always means what? Joint and itis means inflammation. So you're gonna have inflammation of the joint because of some kind of infection. So, how do you think you would get an infection into a joint? So the two same ways that you got it through osteomyelitis. Some kind of injection from an exogenous source, from some kind of pathogen from the outside. So for example, this could be really common secondary after a hip replacement or a knee replacement surgery, if not everything was completely sterile, right? So some kind of external source um, could inject the joint. What if you were an IV user, like an IV drug user, for example? Would that be a possibility? Absolutely. So exogenous source, parasite, being entered into the body. What is the other type that you think might cause septic arthritis? Hematogenous spread, same thing. So you're, the same ways that you would get osteomyelitis, you would possibly be getting septic arthritis. Okay, so arthritis, this septic arthritis basically means an infection of the joint. So what do you think would happen if all of a sudden, okay, let's, let's actually, can we remind ourselves of all the structures and then the anatomical structures of a joint? So what do we call this part right here? Oh, so this is the epiphysis. What covers the epiphysis? Okay, so that would be the very outside of the epiphysis. But when you're looking at a joint, what covers the epiphysis and the periosteum right here? Okay, so that's this one. This is the synovial capsule. But what is that? Articular cartilage, right? Now, articular cartilage, what kind of cartilage is that? Hyaline cartilage. Okay, so we have hyaline cartilage here. We know that we have synovial membrane, and the synovial membrane is actually going to line the articular cartilage. And the whole point of that is that there's stuff in the synovium, like your prostaglandins, your red blood cells, or not red blood cells, sorry, white blood cells, which could, in fact, eat away and erode at the articular cartilage, which you don't want that, which is why you have the synovial membrane that'll actually continue and line the articular cartilage. So what do you have out here? What's the outside part of the joint capsule? 
So you have the synovial membrane is the inside part of the joint capsule. What's the outside part of the joint capsule? Okay, so your ligaments would be like over here. So you could have extra-articular ligaments, intra-articular ligaments. So in anatomy one, you would have learned that the joint capsule is made up of two structures. One of them is the synovial membrane, and the other one's the fibrous capsule. Okay, so we should probably review our anatomy a little bit. Okay, so now that we know that, and you know that inside of the synovial membrane, you have synovium, which is the fluid. The synovium has all kinds of stuff in it, right? It has water, it has prostaglandins, it has uh, white blood cells, it has all kinds of stuff. Now what happens when there's an infection in here? Okay, so you're gonna have more fluid. So with inflammation, which you guys learned in pathology one, I'm pretty sure, you learned about there's initially vasoconstriction and then reactive vasodilation, right? Okay, so that's the beginning stage of inflammation. Then you have exudate formation. Does that sound familiar? Exudate formation. Okay, so you have exudate formation. That's one of the um, pathogenesis of inflammation. Exudate formation basically means that you've got a whole bunch of immigration of white blood cells, which is another stage. So you have immigration of white blood cells along with increased vasculature and hyperemia, which is gonna increase the fluid in the white blood cells and your macrophages, neutrophils, neutrophils, all that stuff in the synovium. So, the synovium now is going to be what? More liquidy or more thick? More thick. We call that panis. This is an important word because we're going to learn this word, panis, when we talk about rheumatoid arthritis. So there's two times that you see panis. You see it with septic arthritis and you see it with rheumatoid arthritis. So panis means that you have an inflammatory process going on in the synovium, in that fluid, which means that now you have way more fluid, you have way more white blood cells, you have way more of your immune system, so you have more proteins in the area, which now makes it more gel-like. So what does that feel like when you try to move it? Yeah, it's gonna feel super stiff, it's gonna feel achy, it's gonna feel stiff, but once you bring heat to it, so once you move the joint after a little while, it gets a little bit easier because it warms up. You warm up jelly and it'll become a little bit more liquid-like, which makes it a little bit easier to move. So panis is one of the things you would definitely see with septic arthritis, and that's just because you have emigration of white blood cells, you have hyperemia. Okay, all right, so who typically gets this? So anybody can get septic arthritis, um, but it seems to be very common in kids. So kids tend to have it a lot in the ankles and in the elbows, um, more so whereas in adults it could be usually secondary to um, some kind of surgery, which would be common in the hip or in the knees, but anybody can get septic arthritis. Well, and they do, they hurt themselves. They bump and they fall and open gashes and they don't necessarily get them cleaned and they could be really deep and they don't necessarily get them looked at. And so yeah, much more common. But any other things that could make you predisposed to this. So if you're taking immunosuppressants, 
So next week we're learning about ankylosing spondylitis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. We're gonna learn about all those arthritides. All of those arthritides are autoimmune. So those people would be taking immunosuppressants because your immune system is killing off your own body cells, good cells. So you'll take immunosuppressant medication to be able to decrease your <coughs> immune system so that you don't have so many symptoms. So if you're immunosuppressed because of the medications you take, can you mount a proper inflammation to be able to fight that infection in the joint? No. no. So that's one of the big issues. So if you have any kind of arthritis, SLE, RA, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic, gouty arthritis, any of those, you will definitely be more likely to develop septic arthritis and not be able to deal with it. And people with really fragile skin as well, a major, major issue. Um, weak immune systems, that's fine, we talked about that. And then any kind of puncture, wounds, any kind of trauma, any kind of open access to pathogens into the joint, from the skin into the joint is really important. Okay, so this is what we already kind of talked about, the pathogenesis, what happens. Synovial membrane is going to thicken, it is going to create more fluid, it is also going to have more phagocytes and eosinophils and macrophages and white blood cells, which is then going to create thickening of the synovial fluid, which is then going to cause panis formation. Okay, so that can take some time to develop. So that can take days and weeks to develop. So how long do you think it would take before you started noticing symptoms? Can you usually take anywhere between two to three weeks before the symptoms start to show. What symptoms do you think you would have if you had an infection? Oh, there'd be pain for sure. So there you have your inflammation at that site, right? Redness, heat, loss of function, all that kind of stuff. Anything else? Think infection. Oh, Fever. So. You're going to start to notice that there's certain conditions that lend themselves to fever and others that don't. Osteomyelitis also lends itself to fever because your body's mounting an inflammatory response and an immune response to be able to fight off an infection. So one of the things that the body tends to do, which is a non-discriminate type of um, killing off of bad guys, of pathogens, is fever. So really, really common. If you see a child, and I'm going to use a just because it's more common, with a fever who doesn't want to use a joint or who's guarding a joint. That's not really common. Kids are always moving and they're all over the place and they're jumping around. But if you see a kid that doesn't want to move a joint when they've got a low-grade fever, one of the things you should really be putting on your differential diagnosis list is septic arthritis because it's not all that uncommon. So we talked about a lot about this. So joint pain, swelling, of course, your inflammation, you're going to have your fever. There may be a pus drain. Now that takes a long time to develop. There needs to be enough inflammation and it needs to go on long enough for the body not able to deal with it in order for you to have a pus drain. So it could take months. So in this case, if you had a pus drain, it would typically be a chronic septic arthritis. Okay, it would, it would take some time before you got that. So how does this get diagnosed? Most commonly, history. So you see that there's a fever, you see that the kid doesn't want to use their joint, you see that there's inflammation, and hopefully you're going to be able to see that there was some kind of gash or opening of the skin. Or you'll know history of their immunosuppressants, they've had some kind of surgery recently, something like that. So by history and physical exam, you can really get a good idea that it might be septic arthritis. 
Now, you can aspirate the joint, which is probably the best way to do it, because how do you know how to treat it? Is it a parasite? Is it fungus? Is it virus? Is it bacterial? You don't know. Most of the time they do IV antibiotics, because this is something that's actually quite dangerous, because it could lead to sepsis, which could lead to death if it wasn't treated. So these people are hospitalized, and they usually are given IV antibiotics. Before IV antibiotics are given, they really should aspirate the joint, which just means you put a needle in the joint, take out some of the fluid and you basically look at it under a microscope, culture it and look at it on a microscope to know what is the pathogen. It's functional than Absolutely, 100%. Now it is more common for this to be caused by streptococcus um, pneumonia or, or um, staphylococcus aureus. Those are usually the two co most common ones. So it usually is bacterial, but they really should aspirate the joint to be sure. So the only blood tests they're really going to be looking for are your white blood cells to be through the roof, because that's usually what happens when you're fighting an infection, right? Your white blood cells will really increase. And then your x-rays and your contrast MRIs, the x-rays won't really show a whole lot unless there's been so much um, chronic inflammation that now it starts to destroy some of the articular cartilage. But that would have to be chronic, chronic, chronic. The MRI will just show if any of the soft tissues are involved. So it'll show that the synovial, the synovial fluid is increased and it'll show if the joint capsule has started to degrade. Um, but those again would be for chronic things. So we talked about how it gets treated. Typically it's IV antibiotics because it usually is um, bacterial. So there's something you guys, or what would you do if someone came in and you thought they were, they had septic arthritis? Would you do anything? So if you, if, if you thought it was that, you're probably referring them out because they really should be hospitalized. Um, let's just say this is your patient and they said, you know, well, once they got diagnosed, I'm in the hospital, will you come and still treat me? What would you say, A or nay? And you can choose to say no, it's totally up to you. So what is the most important thing for joints? So in the hospital, they may or may not be getting any physical therapy. Who knows how busy the PSWs are? Who knows if they're on a rehab floor? They probably aren't. If they're not on the rehab floor, then they're probably not getting any rehab, which means they're probably sitting in a bed for 20 to 24 hours a day. For Movement's the most important thing. So would it be wrong for you to go in and do some passive range of motion to the joints? Not at all. What are you going to eliminate? Contracture. Hopefully you're going to eliminate some atrophy. Now you're not going to get them to go and get up and walk around and run around and do a lot of active, but you might do some active assisted. But 100% in that acute phase, you need to do some passive range of motion. So if they're not getting any in the hospital setting and you don't feel comfortable doing it, that's fine. Get their partners to do it if they have family members around, right? But they need to be moving those joints because how do you heal? You heal because you increase the blood circulation to an area, right? Because that's what gets all the good stuff to the area. How do you increase blood circulation to an area? You move it, you heat it, you massage it. So the fact of them not moving is really not encouraging healing at that joint. Would you use joint roller? In the acute phase, I probably wouldn't. I would be doing really, really gentle type of techniques. Um, I may want to work on some of the structures above and below and I might be a little bit more aggressive with it but at the site I probably the most I would do is active assisted 
but most likely I would just do passive. And the idea, it's just, just get things moving. Just prevent contraction, that's it. You're just trying to keep the health of the joint and the structures that cross it, right? Okay, so one of the major issues is septic shock, which we talked about, and then obviously with that, multiple organs can be affected, and then death could be the major consequence of that. So that's kind of a big deal. So there's not very many videos today, but we will watch this one. We find out more in today's Health Matters. Oh, those aches and pains. They often come with aging. But for kids, pain in the joints could signal something more serious. Inflammation, infection, septic arthritis. This here is an illustration of a hip in a pediatric patient. Here's the ball and socket of the hip joint. Here they've shown the blood vessels coming in. An infection has started, what's called the Thermal neck, and once again, it can break out. The it Dr. Wagner is referring to is bacteria. Here, it can get into the joint, and that's called septic arthritis if you have an infection of the joint. That's particularly potentially devastating to the cartilage because the cartilage, once again, does not have a good blood supply and it has limited ability to fight off bacterial infection. And if Infection is left in the joint for a significant amount of time. It can lead to irreversible changes in cartilage, which we all know is arthritis. Septic arthritis is considered a medical emergency because of the serious damage it can leave on the bone and cartilage. It can also lead to septic shock. Pain in the joints isn't the only symptom. There's also uh, possible constitutional system, uh, symptoms such as fever, um, uh, rashes, and, and other uh, things that may you may lead you to think about uh, infection. Dr. Wagner, a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, says infections can develop for a variety of reasons. He works with parents to zero in on the culprit. A good examination of the child and, and the right questions will lead you down the history of is this trauma, is this infection, and then we proceed with other diagnostic tests. Antibiotics are the first line of defense to reduce inflammation. Draining the joint is another option to help reduce the pressure Reporting for Lee Memorial Health System, I'm John Bafar. Children with weaker immune systems are more susceptible. Okay, you guys did tuberculosis last semester, right? What do you know about it? It usually starts with the lungs. Why? Okay, so yes, it is. Um, something that you do breathe in, it is an airborne pathogen, so that is true, but why does it stay in the lungs? It's actually because this is called, this is a mycobacterium, and the mycobacterium is, it needs an aerobic environment to be able to survive and to thrive. So what is the most aerobic environment in your whole entire body? The lungs. So yes, you do breathe it in. It is in the environment, um, which means every single time you would cough or sneeze in a kind of close environment, you could be breathing in the mycobacterium um, because it is airborne. So it's fairly easily transmittable. Um, now, what else do you guys know about it? So the lungs is usually the first place and it's because it needs an aerobic environment. It can travel. What do you mean it can travel? 
Oh, it can move. Yes, yes, it can dump into the blood supply, which we're actually going to talk about today, and end up in the spine, which is one of the most common places for it to go. So thoracic spine and lumbar spine. So yeah, we're going to talk about that today. Anything else you guys know about it? You guys have to get tested for it, right? Yeah. How'd you get tested for it? Mm -hmm. So it's called the Skin Man 2 test. And they usually do a two-step test, right? So they inject you and they want to see if your body has a reaction to that structure. And if it has a reaction to it, either you've you had it or you've been inoculated for it, right? So you have an immunity to it. So they want to be able to check on the second visit, which is usually a few days later, five, six days later, to see what the bump looks like. Um, now, what if they said that your Skin Man 2 test was positive? What is that? Yeah, so do they automatically say you have tuberculosis? No. no, because A, you could have been inoculated for it and just have your memory B cells remembered. Um, or it could be that you have a latent form, which basically means it's an encapsulated form that's in the lungs that is actually, you're not actually infecting people. We, do you guys remember the, uh, the gong foci? Do you remember that word from tuberculosis? Okay. When there's an infection of the lung, it's kind of like a cheesy, like a, I don't know, um, cottage cheese kind of material in the lungs. And what ends up happening, so there's this cottage cheese material in the lungs, what ends up happening is the lungs will actually try and ward it off. And they'll actually create like a capsule around it. Once that occurs, you are no longer an active TB carrier, you're a latent TB carrier, which means when you're coughing and sneezing, you're actually not really getting rid of the mycobacterium. So you're actually not infecting people. When your immune system drops, this can now start to go crazy and break through that gong foci. So this is a term you should probably know about. Um, and if your immune system drops and you're no longer able to keep that at bay, then at that point you could become an active TB carrier, which on that, that, that point you would be possibly infecting individuals. So if you had active TB and your body could not ward it off or hold it off, or if you had latent TB and all of a sudden your immune system dropped and you were no longer able to keep it at bay, eventually this mycobacterium tuberculosis could dump into the blood circulation, right? So there could be a hematogenous spread. That word's gonna come up a whole lot. Once you have a hematogenous spread, it could go anywhere. But one of the places it likes to go is in the spine. So what happens, do you think, when the blood, are, are discs very well vascularized? No. So where do you think it's going to go? Okay, it, 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 it's not super common to go to the spinal cord, but it could. What else is really well vascularized? They, they're, they're, yeah, not bad. Keep going, keep going outside. We know ligaments are not very well vascularized. Muscles. Muscles are. It's not typically where it goes to. The bones, the periosteum. Periosteum is really well vascularized. That's usually where the mycobacterium tuberculosis ends up going to. It goes to the periosteum of the vertebrae. It typically will go into the T-spine and lumbar spine. And usually it's lower thoracics and lumbar, hint, hint. So the thoracolumbar area is usually number one for where it likes to go to, and then lumbar spine is number two for where it likes to go to. 
If tuberculosis infects the spine, it is called Pott's disease. Okay, so if I ask you what is Pott's disease? It is TB in spine. Now, there's a very specific word we use for the hematogenous spread of TB from lungs to the spine. That word is a miliary spread. It's all in your notes, okay? Hint, hint, not military spread. So read your detractors but miliary spread. And if I were to ask you what miliary spread means, it means it's hematogenous spread of the mycobacterium tuberculosis from the lungs to the spine, causing POTS disease. Does that make sense? Okay. I am almost done the test. Um, okay, so blah, 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 that's fine. Oh yeah, tuberculosis is on the rise over the last um, few decades, like 15 to 30 years. And one of the things they're attributing that to is so much travel. People are all over the place traveling. So we didn't have a very high risk of um, tuberculosis in North America 15 to 20 years ago. But with the amount of travel everybody's doing, there's a lot of people being infected other places and bringing it to North America. So it's actually on the rise right now. And they never used to do it like I remember I had a doctor who did like yearly testing for it, and he was like, not a lot of GPs did it. Because it wasn't common here. You know, we used to get it every year. Interesting. That would be a waste of healthcare dollars. <laughs> okay, so if you know that your patient had TB, which usually means in the lungs, and all of a sudden they start complaining of low back pain, and your treatment is not making a difference, you need to have this as part of your differential diagnosis. So usually if you have a lung TB infection, even if it's a latent infection, if at any point they were positive for TB, it could take a few years before that spread could actually end up getting into the spine. So they say anywhere between two to three years. But I've seen people come in after five, seven, 10 years and all of a sudden have pain in the thoracolumbar area and it's actually because of POS disease. So do your testing, ask all your questions right? Because this is one of the things you need to know. Should you put this on your DDX list? If you've never had TB and your chest x-rays are, ne are negative, would you even put this on your DDX list? No! But, but if there's a... TB, don't they just clear it? But could you be a latent carrier? Well, if you cleared it, then your body could keep some of it? If you have completely treated it, then at that point, I would say that you would be a non-carrier. But are you, have you had a chest x-ray to completely show that the lungs are completely normal? Or is there still residual gong foci? Because if there's still residual gong foci, you're a latent carrier. And if at any point that immune system drops, you could now end up with a spread, right? So the, the questions really should be asked have you had the chest x-ray? Are they 100% sure it is completely gone and you're not even a carrier, right? Okay, so things that you're gonna wanna look for. It's an infection. So what do you look for? Fever. Fever. And where's the pain gonna be? Thoracal. Well, at this point with POS disease, it's gonna be either at the TL area, most commonly, or on the lumbar spine. 
Could it be upper in the thoracic spine? Yes. Could it be in the cervical spine? Yes. But those are not common places. So now let's just say now that someone comes in, they've been complaining of thoracolumbar pain for six to eight months, and nobody can figure out what's going on. And now, if you do think that it is a TB infection, how much of an infection would there be? Huge amount. So lots of inflammation. Lots of gunk at the area, right? Because your body's been trying to fight all this stuff. Where's all that stuff gonna go? Where's all that pus and garbage it's from the inflammatory? So it is not uncommon to have a psoas pus drain with this. It would have to be a chronic condition that has not been diagnosed, which is actually in case the fact. Okay. Um, anything else you need to know? So we already know how it's going to be diagnosed. Medication, there's an actual specific medication for TB, so usually that'll be prescribed. Um, chemotherapeutic meds, usually they'll only do this if it is super chronic and the tuberculin medications are not working. So this is not usually a super common um, initial treatment. Of course, aspirating the joint, so they're going to try and take all the gut out as much as possible. But aspirating the spine could be tricky, so it's not ideal for a treatment. And then, of course, going in and doing spinal surgery, infusing the area, and cleaning it all up. Obviously, not the first choice either. So if, by chance, you've got this infection that's affecting the periosteum, so the periosteum is degrading, you could now end up with a pathological fracture. What's a pathological fracture again? secondary issue, right? So typically, if that bone was healthy, would it fracture under these conditions? No, but because now there's a compromise to the bone, it is now fracturing under normal conditions. You sit from, you go from sitting to standing, you walk, you go downstairs and you cause pathological fractures, right? So because these periosteal bones are going to be fairly thinned and degraded because of the infection, you can end up with a pathological fracture. And then if the infection spreads into the spinal cord, obviously it could affect radicular nerves, it could affect the spinal cord, and eventually it could end up leading to meningitis possibly, which would be very dangerous. There was a famous president who had, was paraplegic because of TB. I can't remember who it was, but... Really? Yeah. I don't know if it was DBE or... As we learned last week, I live under a rock, so I don't know these things. <laughs> I would not do well at those games. Okay, so we are going to cover, I think, nine, eight or nine, um, musculoskeletal pathologies, um, sorry, oncology of the musculoskeletal system. So cancers of bone, essentially. We're going to cover nine of them. A lot of these are going to be in kids. So what I need you guys, because you're not oncologists, you're not going to treat these conditions, obviously. Right? If it is a benign tumor, you may be able to work around the area. Um, but if it's a malignant tumor, you are... What are you doing? You're referring them out, right? We're obviously not treating that, right? So for these eight or nine conditions, I need you guys to understand the differences between them, okay? Um, and I'm going to highlight what the differences are between them. I need you to also know which ones are benign and which ones are malignant. Because if they're benign, 
Could you still treat or do you have to refer out? You can still treat them. I would still suggest referral because some benign tumors can grow, which could still be a problem. But it's not like an emergency where you shouldn't touch them and they need to be referred out. However, if you're suspecting malignancy at that point, that's completely different. You need to refer out ASAP, right? So please, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to need to know the difference between the ones that are benign and the ones that are malignant. That's an easy question. Which of the following is a benign bone tumor? Which of the following is a malignant bone tumor? Okay? So, osteoid osteoma. Osteoid osteoma basically looks like, they call it a nidus. What that means is, when you look at a bone on an x-ray, what does it look like? Like, what does a periosteum of a bone look like? It looks white, because it's really thick, compact bone, right? Whereas the bone marrow doesn't have a lot of calcium in it. It's not thick bone, it's got a lot of holes, like the spongy bone, right? So it's gonna look more gray, okay? And the soft tissues are gonna look very gray or blackish. So on x-rays, what you're gonna be looking for is if you see a translucency, which means a gray area in a compact bone, that's not normal. Compact bone is supposed to be white which now tells me that if it's not white, then there's not a whole lot of hydroxyapatite crystals, which is your calcium and your phosphates, your magnesiums. So, osteoidosteoma will come up with lucencies, very small parts, very small lesions in compact bone that look great. And they're small, they're usually a centimeter or less. They don't usually grow, so, and they're benign. So are we super concerned about this? Not typically. Because they don't grow bigger than one centimeter, is it ever really gonna probably cause a pathological fracture? Chances are not. So in this case, osteoidosteoma, benign tumor, eh, I'm not too concerned about it, okay? So we have to know that it is more common, well, it's more common in boys under 25, that's fine. It is usually found in the diaphysis, which means what? What does diaphysis mean in the bone? Middle. The middle, so the shaft. So when you're looking at the shaft of the bone and you see a translucency or a nidus in the periosteum and it's very, very tiny, this is probably gonna be one of the top things in your differential diagnosis list. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's no reactive sclerosis, which means if this was my bone, Okay, the nidus will kind of be like in that area, or it could be here, or it could be here, it could be here. But what I'm saying is there is no reactive sclerosis, which means the bone around it is not becoming super, super white. Reactive sclerosis is something you're going to see with some of the malignancies. So again, overreaction around it to sort of protect the hole. Yeah, to kind of like ward it off almost. All right. So, those are some of the things you need to know. If you were to give these kids NSAIDs, the pain totally goes away. That's another really big clinical indication that it's osteoidosteoma. Because the next one we're going to talk about, which is osteoblastoma, NSAIDs does not make a difference. They still have some pain with it. And more commonly, if you have any kind of tumor, when is the most likely time for you to have pain? At night. At night. So if someone has night pain, you really need to rule out the possibility of malignancy because that's one of our red flags, right? Night pain. 
but you give them NSAIDs and it makes them feel better. So you give them Advil or aspirin, probably not going to give a kid naproxen, but anyways. Um, that's really, really super helpful. So this is what it would look like, a little bit of a grayish. So this is probably towards the metaphysis area, so this is a little bit low, but right in the diaphysis, again, this is called the nidus. So it's just deep, a lucency, a translucency in the periosteum. And then what it would look like on a CT scan is this. So these would be x-rays, and this would be a CT scan. CT scan presents like an x-ray in the sense of the bones are very, 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 very white, and soft tissue becomes very gray. Um, you can usually tell it's a CT scan because they do cuts. Whereas an x-ray, you can see the entire length of the bone. So that's an osteoidosteoma. Yeah, so asymptomatic, typically, we don't really do a whole lot. If it's painful for the kid, then they may look at doing some treatment. They may look at going in and just kind of shaving out the bone and then packing it with a new bone, possibly. Um, but it'll be a, a relatively minor surgery to be able to do that. The good thing here is it doesn't usually come back. Some of these are going to come back. So doing surgery is not super helpful. Okay, osteoblastoma almost looks the same as an osteoblastoma, except it's bigger. So these guys are benign, but they're bigger than one centimeter. And these guys can grow. So the problem if they grow is what? Like what? Okay, so it could compress on the rest of other bone structures. Like, it could lead to a pathological fracture. But what about other soft tissue structures? Like, could it compress nerves? Or could it compress vasculature? Could it compress ligaments? So more likely to cause pain. Not relieved by NSAIDs. Still occurs in boys, usually kind of that under 30 age. So it is very similar to osteoidosteoma, except it's bigger. The other thing is its location is a little bit different. It's usually found in the metaphysis. Um, okay, so there's obviously going to be some pain in the area, which is fine. Um, if the spine is affected, so where are your pedicles? If this was the spine, where are your pedicles? So what are these? Spinous processes. What are these? So superior end plates and then inferior end plates. What are these round things? What are these kind of like lucencies right here? So the TVPs will be out here, which aren't very well visualized, but the TVPs are going to be out here. So these is what we call our pedicles. So if you remember, the pedicles are the anterior portion of your neural arch. Remember we talked about the neural arch, and then the posterior part of the neural arch is the lamina. So what you usually see right here are going to be your pedicles. So when you look at your pedicles, they should be equivalently like a darker gray. But look at the difference here. Those ones look the same. Those ones, this one looks a little different. These ones look pretty much the same. Those ones look pretty much the same. Those ones look the same. But look at the difference here. Or look at this. A nidus or a translucency, but look how big it is. So could you say this is an osteoblastoma? There's no way. Is that bigger than a centimeter? Yeah. Way bigger. And it's not commonly 
found in the diaphysis is more commonly found in the metaphysis, which means usually closer to the epiphysis. So these are the kinds of things I need you guys to remember to differentiate. Now, you're not doing x-rays, right? So you're not necessarily going to know if it's an osteoidosteoma or osteoblastoma. But you don't need to know. Your job is to say, this is presenting like a benign tumor. I would really strongly recommend you go get an x-ray or a CT scan. Or this is presenting like a malignant bone tumor. I would really like you to get to the emergency room right now to be able to get a CT or MRI. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so not relieved by NSAIDs. Again, one of the big differences between osteoidosteoma and osteoblastoma. But again, both benign. And again, you don't see any reactive sclerosis here. The other thing that you can tell that's benign, is the cortical margin clear? Can you see the cortical margin? Can you see the periosteum? If this was a malignant tumor and you were looking at an x-ray, it would be hazy. You could not see clear borders and clear lines. This is a very clear border right around that whole lesion. If it wasn't, it would really give you the indication of a malignancy, okay? So there is a more increased risk of recurrence here, but again, if it's asymptomatic, you're not gonna do a whole lot. If it's symptomatic, which it typically is because it's a larger tumor, then they'll usually do some kind of surgery. So clean out the area, pack the bone. Um, yeah, they'll usually do a, a minor surgery. Okay, osteosarcoma. So one of my patients brought her little girl, like she was getting treated, but her little girl came with her. I think she was either three or four at the time. So um, I know this family. So anyways, the little girl came in and she ran up to me and I picked her up and, and she said, ow. I'm like, oh, what happened? She goes, you can't touch my leg. And I said, why, what happened? She goes, my leg hurts. And I said, oh. So then I put her down and I watched her and she was running around, no problem, no pain. But as soon as there was contact on her thigh, it caused her pain. Okay, so I asked her mom some questions and her mom was like, well, you know, like, her two siblings have been sick, so like she's been under the weather and she's been sleeping a lot and she's had a little bit of a low-grade fever. Um, so was there any trauma? Nope, can't think of anything. Did you notice any bruising in the area? Nope, was there any cuts or any lesions? Nope, can't think of anything. Okay, so a little bit swollenish, like it was a little bit red, a little bit hot, but not significant. So anyways, kind of let it go. And then at the end of the treatment, again, she was laying down and she got up really abruptly and turned onto the other side. And I said, what happened? And she says, oh, my leg really hurts. And I said to her, I'm like, you know, just can you go back to your GP, like try and get an appointment ASAP, go back to the pediatrician and, and just maybe get an x-ray. I don't know, there's this, just, like there's no mechanism of injury. The kid's having pain. I can't see any cause of it, but she's running around like normal. It's just on palpation and pressure. And I'm like, nah, I don't know. So anyways, x-ray came back and they weren't sure what it was. And they're like, ah, it doesn't look like much, but we're not really sure what it is based on the x-ray. So it took about two months to get her into a CT. I was really hoping for an MRI because she's three years old and that's a lot of radiation, but anyways. So she, they ended up getting her into a CT two months later and it was osteosarcoma. So um, it's highly possible, she didn't have night pain. They don't remember her waking up at night or crying, um, but she did have some constitutional symptoms. So anyways, long story short, they did do the surgery. They took out that whole part of bone and then packed it in, and then she had radiation into the area. 
Um, and she's fine. She's now six or seven, so I think she's three years cleared. Um, but this does happen. So it wasn't my patient, but it was my patient's child. So this is a malignant tumor, which is fairly metastatic, which means it's predispensed. It's Yes, its likelihood to spread is fairly good, which means if you leave this, then chances are it's not really treatable. It's pretty much palliative because if it starts to jump to bone, liver, or lungs, we're in major trouble, right? So this does need to be detected pretty early. So, um, yeah, it's very destructive. Most malignant tumors are. It's more common in boys, and they say under 30, which is very similar to osteoblastoma, but there's another incidence, other than in kids or young adults, there's another incidence over the age of 50. So this isn't just a condition of kids. And in fact, actually, my dog that I had to put down five years ago, he had osteoblastoma of his upper right arm, paw, leg. So not, like, not an uncommon thing at all to occur in older individuals either. The older we are, the increased risk of malignancies, right? Okay, usually likes to be close to growth plates, um, which is a bit of a problem because if it's close to growth plates and let's say you need to do surgery and radiation to the area, what could that affect? Well, the growth plate. So if it's happening to a three or four year old kid, could that cause significant likelihood discrepancies in her, for example? It could destroy the growth plate and there could be some significant likelihood discrepancies that would be a consequence or a complication, right? So this is aggressive. This is bad. This is metastatic. It will spread if you let it spread. Yeah, we don't really know the cause. So there's a lot of different things that can, that can predispose you to having it. Osteoblastoma is one of them, which is a benign tumor. And it doesn't usually change to a metastatic tumor, but if you have that, it increases your risk of developing osteosarcoma in a different spot, okay? Giant cell tumor we're gonna talk about today, which is another malignancy. It's not as aggressive. And then we talked about chronic osteomyelitis already. Why would radiation predispose you to osteosarcoma? Radiation causes cell mm -hmm. Either radiation or chemotherapy, right? But in this case, when it comes to bone, that radiation really increases your risk of developing osteosarcoma. So, pain. It is the number one, for pretty much all of these bone cancers, pain is gonna be like your number one symptom. So if you can reproduce the pain, you may do a treatment plan you're not getting any red flags or anything, you may be able to reproduce the treatment plan, you may treat them. If your treatment plan is not working after two, three, four treatments, you should revisit it, right? Because A, your clinical impression could be wrong, or B, it could be something completely ominous. Which, if you palpated, let's say this was in the spine, let's say osteosarcoma was in the spine, you palpated the spine, would you cause pain? So you'd be able to reproduce the pain. So you do have to be a little bit careful, make sure you do ask all of your history questions. So it doesn't typically cross the epithelial growth plate, but it can affect the joint by going through soft tissue, and that's just because it can spread. So heat, swelling, obviously what's the body trying to do? Yeah, so at the area there's gonna be some inflammation. Fever can be noted, but it's not always noted. So you don't always have those systemic effects, which makes it a little bit difficult to figure out. 
If it's going to metastasize anywhere, it usually likes the lungs. Lungs, liver, and bone are usually the places it goes, but in this case, lung is the number one. So we talked about the periosteum leaving. Kate, let's look at this Codman's triangle. This is what it looks like. Can you see a very well-defined border? It just looks like a big mess, doesn't it? That is classic if you're looking at an x-ray and it is not well-defined, 95% of the time it's malignant. If it is a well-defined tumor, it's usually benign. So what ends up happening is, I talked about that reactive sclerosis that we don't have here, right? When there is a malignant tumor, the body, what it, the, the body wants to try and fight it, and what does bone do to try and fix bone? Make more bone. So it's going to create some sclerosis, and it's just gonna be hazardous and all over the place, because like, I don't know what to do with this tumor, so I'm just gonna lay down a whole bunch of bone. So oftentimes, that bone will look like a triangle. They call it a Codman's triangle. And oftentimes, that Codman's triangle will be at the epiphyseal growth plate area, so in the metaphyseal or epiphyseal area. Okay, so that's, that's classic malignant tumor. It's not clear, not well-defined edges. It's all over the place. Okay, Ewing sarcoma also happens in kids. I think the youngest case was, I think they were five months old when the youngest case of Ewing sarcoma, so like baby baby. Um, but it is usually found in children or adolescents more commonly. This is malignant and it's aggressive. So if ever you thought someone had osteosarcoma, what would be a DDX for it? What would be a differential diagnosis for it? Ewing's. If you thought someone had Ewing sarcoma, what would be your differential diagnosis? Osteosarcoma. Because they're both super aggressive bone malignancies. So do you care which one it is? No! If it's either of them, get out! Yeah, like get them to the hospital, I mean. Okay, so um, it seems to be more common in um, Caucasians and more common in um, parents, and particularly the women, but it can also be carried through the men's sperm, any kind of carcinogens that you're dealing with, so herbicides, pesticides, dealing with petroleum products, dealing with leather products, all that kind of stuff really increases your risk of being able, from your infant, of the child being, um, developing Ewing sarcoma, so it's really, really common. Parental smoking, um, I don't, it's linked, but they don't really know why, but there's an increased risk. Now, I know lots of people who have smoked their whole entire pregnancy and their kids are totally fine, but it increases your risk factor. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to develop it, but it increases your risk. So this onion skin we're going to talk about. So we know that there was reactive sclerosis with osteosarcoma that, that created that kind of triangular mess, right? Oftentimes with Ewing's, what ends up happening, you just still have reactive sclerosis, but that reactive sclerosis almost will look like lines, like the rings of an onion. It doesn't always look like this, because I'm going to show you some pictures that don't have that um, reactive sclerosis, but if you do see this, that is classic of Ewing's. Okay, so what does this look like to you? Osteoblastomas, it could be, but osteoblastomas like to be in the metaphysis. So 
Asurasioma, that's bigger than one centimeter. No, asurasioma likes to be in the diaphysis. But it's not a clear border. It has a fear, except what's all this stuff? Spongy bone. Mm, spongy bone is supposed to be right kind of in the center. These are like black dot, black dot, black dot, black dot, black dot, black dot. So what do you think? Yeah, there's something not good here. Doesn't look crazy, aggressive, destructive yet, but there's something not good here. This is an example of a Ewing sarcoma. So this, what does that look like? This one right here. Just looks like a bunch of sclerosis in the medullary cavity or in the bone marrow. Does it look all that aggressive? It doesn't have a clear border. It's kind of like all over the place which now starts to make you think, eh, but does that look super aggressive and bad? No, Ewing sarcoma. Again, Ewing sarcoma, so that's the same picture as that. So, now look at this one. This one, you can see that the tumor's here, and you can see the bone's trying to react to it. It's trying, so this is your kind of like onion layer appearance. And you can see, where's the clear border? like uh, up here and then uh, I can't really tell are the soft tissues involved so in this case they're actually going to take out most of the bone as much pretty much all of the tumor and some extra around it because this is highly highly malignant and metastatic so you're basically going to take all of this out and you're basically going to put a rod in this is a limb sparing of surgery that they would have done otherwise they would amputate because is there, would you want to take the risk of not having all of the bone tumor removed? No. So if amputation is not what happens, then you should do a limb um, sparing technique, which is basically take away almost all of the bone and take away more than just the tumor, right? You basically shave off good bone too, and the idea is that you basically have gotten it all, and then you would put in metal rods to be able to support that. So, bone pain again, number one symptom. What a surprise. So, the difficulty with this one is the pain can be intermittent. So, if you expected a really significant tumor, like a malignant metastatic tumor, do you think sometimes you'd be pain free? I would think that you should have pain all the time. This thing's growing and eating away and it's doing its thing all the time. So this is one of the tough things with Ewing sarcoma, is because the pain comes and goes, it's not all that classic that it's a malignancy. Could this present like osteo, uh, like septic arthritis if it was close to a joint? Or could this present like um, osteomyelitis if it was in the middle of a bone? Because that pain comes and goes, right, with the inflammation. So flu-like symptoms, again, could that be osteomyelitis? It has flu-like symptoms. Could it be septic arthritis? Happens in kids. This happens in kids. Not unlikely. Swelling. Could that happen with osteomyelitis? Septic arthritis. So this one, it's really hard to diagnose based on history and clinical presentation. But the x-rays and the MRIs, it's pretty classic to be able to diagnose it. So not until you get to the x-rays where you start to see that onion 
appearance where the, you've got that reactive sclerosis, that's usually when you're really clear that that's you in sarcoma. But if there's any constitutional symptoms or red flags, please send them out. Either way, it's, if you thought it was osteomyelitis, what are you doing? You're, if you think it's septic arthritis, what are you doing? So let's hope that where they go, emergency room, walk-in, wherever, let's hope that they're able to do some imaging and then be able to figure out that it's not one of those two conditions and that it is true malignancy. But Ewing sarcoma is a lot harder to diagnose because the clinical presentation is not clear like it is with some of the other ones. So there's x-rays, bone scans, all really good. They're gonna look for um, blood work, so your ESRs are gonna be elevated, which basically means your body's fighting something. And then bone biopsy is usually the best way. They're actually gonna take a piece of bone out and they'll look at it underneath the microscope and they'll know that it's malignant. So at that point, they'll do it. So we talked a little bit about um, treatment. So surgery, they, they will do some radiation. Um, but if, I mean, especially if it's not caught super, super, super early, surgery is pretty much the mainstay. And with surgery, they'll also do radiation because this is so malignant that the chance of metastasis is so high that it's not worth missing it. Okay, chordomas. So, um, I know we don't get a lot of knowledge about the embryological development of a fetus, but do you guys remember we talked about the neural tube? Okay, so the neural tube is what develops into the brain and the spinal cord, right? The nodal cord is what's around the neural tube, which means it's what develops all of your soft tissues and your bones in the spine and in the skull. Okay, so that's your nodal cord. So knowing that, your chordoma is going to be a tumor, a benign tumor of your nodal cord. So where do you expect to see it? Spine, maybe skull. Okay, so that is most commonly. So sphenooccipital, which is like inside, right, where the occiput's gonna meet with the sphenoid. So you'd have to like drill like right through up here. Um, sacrococcygeal down below, upper cervical spine, lumbar spine. So again, in the spine, but you know that because it comes from the nodal cord. Okay, so that's really important. It is slow growing, slow growing, but it is destructive. So let's just say I have a chordoma at the lumbar spine. What's the problem? Okay, it could not be that at all, but let's just say we're sure it's a chordoma. What's, what's the Cardi Cardioquinus syndrome could definitely be a complication. Anything else? What if it's, at, what if it's above the L2 kind of area? Well, it can cause central canal stenosis. So if you guys remember, when you look at a vertebrae, and you have this hole here, so what happens all of a sudden, let's say if you've got this benign tumor here and it's growing? It can make, it can stenose or make a narrowed vertebral foramen. If it narrows the vertebral foramen, that's called central canal stenosis, which means it's gonna stenose the spinal cord. So neurological symptoms can present with this primarily because it's in the spine. All right, um, so they like to go into surrounding areas. 
Um, okay, it is possible to metastasize. It is known as a benign tumor, but there is in a risk with this one that it can actually metastasize. So it can become malignant, but it is classified as a benign tumor. So look at the symptoms, pain. Anybody surprised? Someone comes in with low back pain. You can reproduce it. Treatment plan. Doesn't go as planned. Three, four, five treatments later, they're still not getting 100% better. Maybe imaging's important because it could be a chordoma. So, night pain, what does that make you think? Yeah, so it could be carcinogen, or it could be cancer or malignant. So that was something that you would want to refer out for. And then neurological symptoms. If it's happening at the sacrococcygeal in the lumbar spine, it could be affecting the cardioquina, which would have bilateral bladder function. So incontinence of the bladder, incontinence of the fecal matter. Anybody have a problem with that? Medical emergency, right? Now, medical emergency, hopefully they're gonna do an MRI, probably. At the very least, they'll do a CT scan, especially if you're coming in with those kinds of dysfunctions. Anything in the lower limb where there's a possible cardioquina, they'll usually do imaging and then they'll notice that it's a chordoma, which is a benign tumor. So this is what it would look like. So basically it's eating, it's eating away, because it is an aggressive benign tumor, which means it grows. So it's eating away at the bones. So what else would you think might be a complication other than affecting the spinal cord and the nerve roots? There'd be um, postural issues. So but why would you end up with postural issues? So one side up and the other side down, so you're going to be like hunched, right? But on which way. why are you going to be hunched? The, the answer is that this is a weak bone. So you're going to end up with a pathological fracture. That's classic. And oftentimes, that it's usually an incidental finding. So they go in to do x-ray. They're like, oh, there's something going on in the low back or a chest x-ray or whatever. And all of a sudden, they'll start to notice this. Pathological fracture hasn't happened yet. Or all of a sudden there's pain because of a pathological fracture and they're like, oh look, it was a chordoma. Okay, so that's most commonly. And then again, right here it would be in the skull. So that would be at the sphenooccipital bone. So imaging is probably the best way to be able to diagnose this. Um, and then of course, surgery is the best way to get rid of it. Now this is the problem. How do you do surgery at the sphenooccipital area? Yeah. They usually don't like to do, because uh, like, you really have to open up the occiput, basically move the cerebellum out of the way, and then get to that area. So, and there's a lot of structures right around there, neurological structures. Um, so they oftentimes will not do surgery at the sphenooccipital level unless it is really aggressive and having significant symptoms. But that is one of the ones they won't really do surgery on. Problem here is, it likes to recur. So it's great that you took it out, but three years later, five years later, 10 years later, guess what? It can come back. So if you know someone has a history of a benign tumor in the spine, and they're coming in with a very similar complaint or pain somewhere else, this really has to be somewhere in your DDX list. Maybe it's number five, six, or seven, but it should be somewhere. Okay, giant cell tumors. 
malignant, but not too bad. So it says benign, but it has, it's known to become malignant. So I classify this as a malignant tumor because the likelihood of it becoming malignant is fairly good. So that's not good, right? Low risk of metastasis, which means low risk of spread, but it's still highly destructive and invasive in the area that it's found. So it likes the epiphysis. So anybody have a problem with that? So it likes this area right here. Anybody have a problem with that? Well, yeah, you're right. The periosteum's going to volatilize, but if this is aggressive and destructive, there goes the joint, right? So this, this can be quite destructive to the joint. Oops, oops, cordial. Okay, so again, it's more common in Asians. So weight bearing. This likes the lower limbs. It could be anywhere, but it does like the lower limbs. So tibia, femurs, spine, ilium. And usually what ends up happening is pathological fractures again. It will start to eat away at the epiphysis, which now means the epiphysis is going to actually collapse, leading to a pathological fracture because it weakens the bone, just like all the other tumors. So it still happens usually in young individuals. And it's like I said, lower limb is the most common place. The knee is the number one place for it to occur. So here is a giant cell tumor in the knee, in the tibia, proximal tibia. So what do you notice? What do you notice? No, I didn't hear. Okay, it's a, yeah, so it's in the epiphysis, yeah. Anything else? So it looks like there's a well-cortical margin. It, lo it looks fairly well demarked. So does this make you think of a malignant tumor? Not typically. But you said it's not malignant. It, it has a pre predisposition to become malignant, yes. So now what about this one? So this is, again, at the epiphysis of the radius, so the distal aspect of the radius. What does this look like? So now look at this. You're starting to see a little bit of damage right in here. So it's not quite as clear and crisp as this one right here. So this is starting to make you think, eh. yeah, this is not looking so good. It does have a benign characteristic to it, but you're starting to now feel like there may be a malignant characteristic a little bit. But that's what it looks like. Again, it's the bone being destroyed at the epiphysis. So osteoblastomas kind of would look similar to this, wouldn't they? Because they like the metaphysis, which the metaphysis is right in here, so very close to the epiphysis. And again, this looks kind of benign-ish, which would look like an osteoblastoma. So again, could be misdiagnosed unless you bone biopsy, then you could be 100% sure. So they will, again, typically do surgery, but there's a high, high, high risk of recurrence, like really high. So is it worth it? Well, they'll usually radiate the area. And the idea is that if they didn't get it all with the surgery, then the radiation will kill whatever's left and hopefully that'll decrease the reoccurrence. Do you guys want a break? I think we only have two.
Um, three. Okay, we have three left. And then we're going to do a few MSK cases. Um, tell me you guys touched on multiple myeloma last semester? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. So, because you were supposed to have done it last semester, so I'm going to, I, I put more than you need to know because you were already supposed to know some stuff from last semester. Um, but this can essentially be a bone tumor, but it can also be a tumor of the bone marrow, which was what was supposed to be covered last semester, but that's okay, we'll cover it now. So we'll take a break. Um, we'll come back at, um, like 12.30ish, 12.30. And then we'll do the three oncology conditions, and I think there's three or four more other conditions.
So what was your, the cardigan is super cute. Um, she's like, or I was like, what was your last PP from your last PP? Like, she's like, like, what was it was like Monday. She goes, it was 181 over 87 or something like that. And I was just like, I literally was like, is she like this? No, I was just like, oh, are you sure? Yeah. And then she's just like, yeah, she's, so she has
Wow. That's awesome. Because everything. Yeah. Yeah. We spent a little bit of money. Um, everything was like 20% off. That's perfect. Mm hmm. Um, somewhere between one and four weeks. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Are you nervous? Yeah. Yeah. Not gonna lie. I know. You do? No, do you? Oh, God, no. No, no. <laughs> I don't think I was like, I'm not even going to let you do any more research. I just going to let it happen. Like, I'm so out of control, like, in this whole thing. Like, I keep trying to control what's going to happen, and, like, I can't, so I'm just going to let it happen. Yeah. It's a thing. But I'm, like, so close to my boyfriend right now, and I'm losing my shit. Just straight in it. What? Like, I just, like, am not in control of my, like, emotions anymore. It's so silly. Yeah. It gets worse. Do you mind? I'm trying to take a poop and you're like kicking me. Like it's so uncomfortable. Like what are you doing? Yeah. They're big. It's weird, eh? Yeah, but then like perspective, like a weird, strange, like you read the baby apps and it's like, yeah, your baby's like has has full function over all of its senses. And I'm yeah. like, wait, what? <laughs> what does it need those for? I don't understand. It gets like Putting shoes and socks on is so hard. Yeah, yeah, I had to have Polly on my boots today. And it gets worse. Yeah, I was like, when you roll my pants up, you yep. yes. And sleeping. Oh my god. My sleeping in my second trimester was fine. Yeah. But right now, I'm like, oh. It gets worse. And then every time you move, there we go. Oh yep. And then you're gonna start to pee often. Like I was doing good in the second trimester, but now I'm like every hour and a half I'm up yeah. to pee. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very tired. Yeah. 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 It's fun to know it gets worse, though. <laughs> but there's an end to it. <laughs> hmm. Not even a thought for me. It can't be a thought for me. I'm still working. Yeah, I was super nauseous after it. I failed my first one. I failed my first one. And the next time, if you do fail the first one, the next time you're in the office for like three and a half hours. No, they make you fast for 12 hours. Oh, I was so grumpy. Mm. 
And the sweating gets worse. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> so much fun. Mostly kids stuff too. Yeah. Just don't be paranoid because ninety-nine percent of the time it's fine. I always the way I because teaching it, of course, like you know, you think about it and you're always looking for things. I tell myself it's one percent that something's gonna happen. And at least I'll know what to look for, and it will get hopefully caught early. But 99 percent of the time, it's fine. Everything is stripes. It's so annoying. I was like, what pregnant person wants to wear stripes? Sorry. And it's this way, too. Like, why is it this way? I guess the stripes would be right. I know you guys with optical illusions. When you're moving, you're like making me dizzy. Seriously. I refuse to buy more clothes. I just refuse. I have so many clothes. It's such a waste of Oh, my God. I know. But then I'm like, he's not even sleeping in there for so long. But yeah, and then you this know side's my nursery like is a disaster. Oh really? Whatever. They're not in there for like six months. <laughs> I don't care. What a waste of space. I have a bassinet and it's yeah. in my room and it's all set up. But like, oh my yeah. god! I know it makes it so real. Like I'll get up and Paul will just be like standing in there. Like I'm like, he's just looking at the crib. Like he's like, yeah. <laughs> I've put all the clothes away and everything. Like oh my god! I know. I have two bedrooms. The nursery is a disaster because we're trying yeah. to paint it. And the other room has all this stuff in it. Yeah. So I have two rooms that are a complete disaster. And I said to Brad, I'm like, we could go next week. <laughs> Don't have my bag ready. But all, like, as long as you have a bassinet, like, it's there for yeah, so yeah, yeah. long. Yeah, you know. I feel like physically I'm prepared, but, like, mentally I'm, like, not, not quite there. Like, I was, like, Googling, like, postpartum depression and stuff. Like, I swear I don't have it right now. Like, it's so weird. Like, I physically want to, like, put my head through walls and have to, like, it's so weird. It's, like, the weirdest thing. No, but I think that's why I'm so worried about like postpartum because I'm like, oh man, if it gets worse than this, like I'm screwed. It's like I would say I'm edgy and yeah. I'll get angry quickly and annoyed easily. I'm like irrationally sad. Yeah, yeah I'm like irrationally sad about like everything. So I think that's, that's kind of it's like normal. Yeah, I know. It's a strange feeling. Though. Now, did your sister have postpartum depression? Yeah, and my mom. Mm-hmm. So I was like, and I had it before, like when I was younger. So like I can recognize like what the feeling is, but now I'm like just not in control of it. And I'm like, oh. so trying to finish the semester. I'm like, this is not a good time. <laughs> Too much. So I was like, you're already crying up. I'm like, I know. Oh God. Like a hot mess. Like physically. 
Okay, multiple myeloma. Okay, so <clears throat> we're learning under bone cancers, but please know that when we do on week six, those 10,000 conditions that we didn't do last semester, um, multiple myeloma is one of them that is, should be in there because it's a cancer of bone marrow, okay? So your bone marrow makes what? Red blood cells. Red blood cells, yes? Does it make anything else? White blood cells, okay. So, white blood cells will differentiate into what? Um, okay, yes, you can have agranulocytes and granulocytes. Um, so, Okay, so your agranulocytes, like your uh, B cells, for example, will differentiate into what? What will they become? So B cells will become? No, they become plasma cells. And then what do plasma cells differentiate into? Blood. What specific blood? Proteins. Does this look familiar? Okay, so your B cells, which are part of your humoral immune system, remember there's humoral and there's cell mediated, right? Your cell mediated immunity is your T cells, whereas your humoral immunity is your B cells. So your B cells, you have all different kinds of B cells. Your B cells, some of them will differentiate into plasma cells. Those plasma cells will differentiate into five different types of immunoglobulins. Now this is the problem with, my, uh, with multiple myeloma. These plasma cells are problematic. And instead of developing any five of the immunoglobulins that are needed, they're only gonna develop one. So for example, we'll just cross off the top two and the bottom two. So it only is producing one immunoglobulin. That one immunoglobulin that it produces, because there's so much of it, it actually is called the M protein. <clears throat> because when you take blood work, you'll be able to see there's only one immunoglobulin there, and there's so much of it that's considered an M protein. Or there's so much of it that sometimes you'll actually pee it out. So you can sometimes see the M protein in a urine, in a urinalysis. So this is important to know. There's a dysfunction with the bone marrow that causes a dysfunction of the plasma cells. And instead of the plasma cells secreting all the different immunoglobulins that you need, it only secretes one. But there's other reasons for protein in the urine. Yeah. <coughs> protein in the urine, absolutely. There's glomerulonephritis. There's all kinds of different reasons. So this is a specific you know, immunoglobulin in the urine, though. So not just any kind of protein, right? It's a specific white blood cell. So multiple myeloma, we are talking about it here because you will see that there's deficiencies or lucencies in bone. So it likes the pelvis, the spine, the ribs, the skull. So it actually will eat away at bone, which is why we're learning it here. But it is a true hemopoietic cancer. 
okay? So that's important to know. So men are usually more affected than women and Mediterranean or black descent is more common. So I had one of my colleagues from chiropractic college, within six months of graduation, his mom actually was diagnosed with uh, multiple myeloma. She was Japanese. So not the most common culture for it to be diagnosed in, and it was female, but yet still diagnosed. She was complaining of significant headaches. The worst headache she'd ever had in her whole entire life ended up getting a CT scan, and this is what they found. So we call this a salt and pepper skull. When you hear of a salt and pepper skull, you think multiple myeloma. That's classic for multiple myeloma. It is many lucencies or degradation of bone in the skull. Now you can see this in the pelvis, you can see this in the spine, you can see this in the ribs. This is where it typically likes to um, eat away at bone. Okay. reason for like, because those two people, the groups that you said are usually people who don't have problems with their bones. Like Mediterraneans and blacks, they usually don't have problems. But this is not really a problem of bones. This is really a problem of bone marrow. Yeah. Okay, so it is more common, the older you get, the more likely it is. It can occur usually after 50, most commonly in your 60s or 70s. Okay, so it is the most common time. <coughs> so we have malignant plasma cells, which we already talked about. You need to know that, which means you're only creating one immunoglobulin, and that one immunoglobulin that you're creating is considered to be the M protein. Please know where this is commonly found. So... Okay, here you are, you have bone marrow. The bone marrow, you've got dysplastic cells. You've got these abnormal cells that are reproducing in the bone marrow. So now, let's say that the bone marrow is this big, okay? And it's supposed to create your red blood cells and all your white blood cells, acranocytes and granulocytes. Now what happens if you have all these terrible cells that are differentiating and taking up a whole bunch of space. How much room do you have for red blood cell production? <clears throat> Not a lot. So red blood cells get crowded and they're not able to fully differentiate. Now what does that mean? What, what does that mean to you guys? If you don't have all of your red blood cells that are working properly, what kind of condition would you develop? Anemia. So anemia is something that's going to be a classic symptom in multiple myeloma. And the reason why is because there's crowding. Now, you've got all these dysplastic cells. How much room do you have for all your white blood cells to be produced? Not a whole lot. So are you gonna be able to mount a really good immune response or fight infection? So are these people more likely to have infections? 100%, so infection is a really, really, really common thing for these people to have. Okay. Right. But each immunoglobulin has a different function. Like for example, M is the initial so when you initially contact something for the first time, it will have a massive reaction against that one thing. G is when you contact something for the second time, it'll have the greatest reaction on that thing. Um, a, for example, is parasitic, usually in the GI. So each one has a different function for the type of pathogen that it's gonna fight. Now, if you only create one, that means that you're not 
able to mount an inflammatory response or an immune response against all the other things. So is it the lack of inflammatory response that causes the cancer, or is it the excess of the it is the bad plasma cell, that's the cancer. This plasma cell is dysplastic. So, okay, so it's just the, that's just the reaction of the cancer. Right, These are, this is what will, it will lead to. The symptoms and the clinical manifestations, that's what you're gonna present but with. it's the plasma cell itself that is bad. That is dysplastic, it's okay. bad. Yeah, all right. Okay, so now let me ask you another question. So, here's the bone. So what, what is happening to the bone? Like what is happening to these parts right here? All of these things. It's being eroded. So what is being taken away? If it's looking more gray, what is being taken away from the bone? Calcium, phosphate, magnesium, primarily calcium. So that means now that this calcium has to go somewhere. Where's it gonna go? Well, it's gonna go into the blood first. So you will notice hypercalcemia in the blood. So you do blood work and you notice that, again, leads you to multiple myeloma. Now you talked about kidney. What's gonna clear the excessive calcium? Kidney. kidney. So are you gonna start to have kidney damage? Yes. Over the long run. So if you just kind of understand what's going on, you can probably figure out some of the major clinical things that you will see in someone with multiple myeloma. Okay, so going back to that. Um, chemo and radiation are carcinogenic and they are one of the causes of multiple myeloma. So whenever you do have a cancer and it is being treated, it is not uncommon in older individuals when you're 60, 70, or 80 to develop a different type of cancer. So that's really, really common. Um, okay, so you're gonna see hypercalcemia, which we know why the bone's being broken down. You're gonna see renal injury, and we know why, because the kidneys are gonna try and get rid of the extra calcium. You're gonna see anemia, and we know why, because the bone marrow is going to be crowded, so it's not creating as much red blood cells as it should. And the bone lytic lesions, that's how the, pre that's the presentation of the multiple myeloma. What bones are usually affected? Skull. Skull. Pelvis. Pelvis. Femur. Femur. Uh, ribs. ribs. Spine. Spine. Okay. So we talk about crab. Okay. High calcium, renal failure, anemia, bone lesions. Crab. So if you can remember crab, then you pretty much know the symptoms and the presentation of someone with multiple myeloma. Now, most common symptoms people, patients will complain of. Fatigue, why? Because your, um, your white blood cells are still right here. Well, you're, you're anemic. And it's also a red flag for cancer. Bone pain, why? Because they're having bone lesions. Hypercalcemia, we understand why. And recurrent infections, why? The white blood cells are working. Yeah. The white blood cells, A, you've got not all of your immunoglobulins working. B, you've got all these dysplastic cells that are crowding out all of your granulocytes from working and functioning properly and differentiating. 
So this is really important to know. Of course you're going to have some red flags, like I explained weight loss, that's pretty classic. Vomiting and thirst, I mean that's not classic to any one condition, but and this is older, yeah, yeah. These are like usually your 60s, 70s, 80s individuals. So things that um, you can test for, you're going to look for the M protein, that immunoglobulin that's high, high levels in the blood. You're also going to look for it in the urine. Um, imaging studies, x-rays is usually, I mean, you saw the skull. It's pretty easy when you x-ray the spine, the pelvis, or the skull to be able to see those bone lesions. Is it everywhere or is it just? It could be any one of those areas. It could be all of them. If it's chronic and you've had it for a long time, yeah, all of those areas could be affected. Um, and then, of course, your bone density tests. Now, your bone density tests won't necessarily differentiate this from um, osteoporosis unless you have other testing. So you would never just do that in isolation, right? These stages, I don't need you to know. But it's basically just how aggressive is the multimyeloma. I don't need you to know that. Now, this is a progressive disease, which means it's not curable. So usually if you're not having significant symptoms, they don't typically do too much for you. Um, once the cancer becomes rapid and rampant, then they'll usually do some chemo or radiation. Surgeries are not oftentimes um, very successful. And I mean, yeah, you can remove ribs, but this is so malignant that the metastasis has probably already happened. So. It is typically palliative. They can. They can do bone marrow transplants. If it's caught in stage one and there'd be very little damage, they could try for a bone marrow transplant. Um, the question would be, where are you doing the bone marrow transplant? In the spine? Because that's where you found it. Okay, so have you just not seen the lesions yet in the ribs and in the pelvis? and in the? But they will typically try if it's in stage one. If it's past stage one, it's not usually um, if you are successful with radiation and chemo and or a bone, uh, the stem cell transplants, they can usually say that 50 to 60% will live up to five years. So yeah, I mean, you can increase your life. My question is, what's your standard of living throughout all the treatments? So if you're getting these treatments for six months to a year, what's your standard of living in that, right? But this is typically, um, a palliative condition. It's progressive and it eventually you will die from it. So it has a very poor prognosis. Okay, osteochondroma. Um, so the next two that we're gonna do, this one and the last one, are gonna be benign tumors, like purely benign. So if you hear the word sarcoma, right off the bat you should think malignant. malignant. Right, omas without the sarcoma, are usually benign, but that's not a hard and fast rule. Okay, so this typically likes long bones, which means like um, the phalanges, the metacarpals, the tibia, the humerus, the radius, the ulna, the fibula, right? So it likes long bones. Um, so it is typically, so we're gonna talk about this mushroom stalk in a minute, um, but there, it's called an exostosis. Actually, let me just show it to you because it makes a whole lot of easier sense. An exostosis means um, osis is a condition of exiting, okay? So what is happening is the bone is growing and exiting the metaphysis, and it will always point away from the joint. If you remember your Codman's triangle, which we talked about with 
osteosarcoma, let's just pretend, the Codman's triangle usually would point towards the joint. This exosostosis will always, always point away from the joint. Now, there's some things called a peduncle or a mushroom stalk. So a peduncle would mean that it doesn't have much of a, I don't know, like a stick. Yeah, like a stick coming off. It's almost like right off of the metaphysis. Whereas here, you would have a mushroom stalk, which means that it's like, it looks like a mushroom. So it has a stem and then it has a cap on it. In children, the problem here is that this exostosis will have its own epiphyseal growth plate. So if this is diagnosed when you're 20, nobody's really concerned about it unless it's compressing on vascular structures or neurological structures or soft tissues that are bothering you. But after skeletal maturity, we're not really concerned about this because it doesn't typically grow. However, if it has its own epiphyseal growth plate and you're only six years old, this is going to grow, which now means it can, chances of it compressing other structures are very high. So, diagnosed in skeletal maturity, not too much of a concern. Diagnosed in childhood, eh, a little bit more of a concern. So you'll usually be able to feel a hard mass or lump and it'll usually be fairly painful, like it'll be tender on palpation. It doesn't usually bother them too much until you actually push on it or prod on it. Um, so yeah, it's not usually painful, unless it's compressing other structures. So usually, unless this is a young child and they're complaining about pain because it's compressing on other structures, usually you'll get an x-ray for some reason and they'll be like, oh look, there's an exostosis. Oh, you probably had osteochondroma. It's an incidental finding because it usually doesn't bother you unless it's compressing on structures. Okay, so we really don't worry about this too much. Um, and there's really not a whole lot to do unless it's compressing on structures, which then get rid of it, right? Okay. And then chondroma. So this is the last benign tumor. So again, it likes the metaphysis. So kind of like osteoblastoma, it also liked the metaphysis. Right, which is also a benign bone tumor. So it usually happens, not so much in kids, but usually in adults. So once you've reached a little maturity, it's more common to occur at that time. So it will grow, and if it does grow, it can of course lead to pathological fractures. It is benign though. So it's not aggressive and it's not malignant, it's not metastatic, which is good. If it is um, symptomatic, an x-ray will be able to show it. If it's asymptomatic and is diagnosed, it's because it was on an incidental finding again. Because these sometimes don't cause any pain. They sometimes don't grow at all. So again, what do you do for this? If it's asymptomatic and incidental, incidental finding, what do you do? Right. Nothing. But if there's painful and it's compressing on structures, then what do you typically do? They might go in and do bone surgery, right? Just kind of get rid of it, clean it out. Now, um, they can do arthroscopic surgery, especially if it's going to be affecting a joint. The bone itself, they'll usually just open up the skin and like curatage is what they call it. Like they'll literally just like scrape it out. Yeah, 
and then they pack it with bone, and then they close it all back up again like a nice little gift. Okay, so those are all the con like oncology, MSK oncology conditions we need to know about. Um, just understand which ones are benign and which ones are malignant. That will be a question. Probably. And know the difference between, like when you talk about Codman's triangle, what kind of condition would that be? When you're talking about onion skin, what kind of condition would that be? When you're talking about uh, translucent nidus that's less than one centimeter, that it gets better with NSAIDs, what kind of condition would that be? Um, what are the most common conditions of a malignant metastatic tumor in kids? So Ewing's and osteosarcoma. So those are kinds of questions. It doesn't make sense for me to ask you guys all about the treatments and the diagnosis really because you're not involved in that part. It's more just recognizing symptoms, right? And recognizing symptoms that are bad versus not a big deal. Okay, myositis significant. Does anybody know anything about this? Has anybody had a big bruise? It's not a bone spur. It's like a spur of bone and muscle. So if you break down the word myo means muscle-itis. Inflammation and then ossificans, ossification, you think bone. So the bone is now developing because of inflammation in the muscle. Would it be like a cow, like almost like a callus? Would it happen because of like a fracture? Would it happen to be like overuse? It could be because of overuse. So has anybody here had a big bruise? Yes. And has that big bruise been re injured multiple times? Yeah, and did anything develop out of that? What did that, bru what did that bruise feel like? Got really hard. Okay, that's classic. If you have a significant trauma, it could be one trauma, it could be multiple traumas. One trauma could do it. When you have so much, what is a contusion? What is a bruise? In soft tissue. Okay, so the body doesn't want random blood in soft tissue. So it wants to clean it up. And sometimes when it can't clean it up, it doesn't know what to do. I can't get rid of it all. It's still bleeding into the area, especially if it's a significant contusion. I don't know what to do. So I'm just gonna lay down bone. Because that'll clean it up. Is this sort of like the same idea as if you get a tumor and they kind of don't put it in like a like thing in it? Yeah, I guess, kind of. I guess, kind of, because it would be an, an unnormal tissue in soft tissue, right? Abnormal tissue in soft tissue. So this can happen, like, for example, I don't know, um, you get kneed really, really hard in the side of the thigh, and you've got this huge bruise, which means you've got this huge amounts of bleeding into that thigh, into that soft tissue, into the vastus lateralis, for example. Eventually, after a week, if it's still kind of, there's still blood there and the body doesn't know how to manage it, it'll start to just lay down calcium. Let's just put down some calcium. And then over weeks, two to three weeks, that calcium will start to harden and you'll actually be able to see, if you took an x-ray or an ultrasound, you'll actually be able to see a piece of bone in soft tissue. Or I could have an injury, bleeding, contusion, and then it heals. And then re-injury, bleeding, contusion, and then it heals. And then re-injury, bleeding, contusion, and then it heals. 
And after the re-injury, it finally says, you know what, I'm just going to lay down bone because I don't know how else to fix this. So myositis ossificans is bone found, bone formation found in soft tissue, like muscles, because of either a major initial trauma or multiple traumas. Okay, so that's really important. You will see this at some point. Very common in soccer. I've had two soccer players come in with this. And usually on the tip. Um, calf, thigh, or in the, yeah, in the shin. So if it started with a bruise yeah. and then it became really hard, this would probably be on my top three for clinical diagnoses. So as a therapist, okay, so you guys now have a patient come in and they've had repetitive trauma to an area, and now the area feels really hard, but you know it's supposed to be muscle, but it feels hard. What do you do? Do you treat it? Do you not treat it? Do you refer out? What kind of techniques? Like, what would you do? Okay, so if you decide to treat it, how would you treat it? So superficial techniques, why? <laughs> you wouldn't want to be pushing on something that's already been traumatized because it's limited. Okay, so the whole reason why this happened was because there's been bleeding into an area and the body didn't know how to fix it, so it put down bone. So if you go and do aggressive techniques, you could cause more bleeding, which would lead to more bone development in soft tissue. If the blood was still like soft, like it had like dried, could you like try and drain the blood out of the Again, yes, lymphatic drainage type stuff, general petrosage type stuff, absolutely. But the point being with this, you never want to be going and doing like deep fascial work and deep general Swedish massages and deep petrosage. Like you don't want to re-injure the area. If you re-injure it, you're gonna make this condition worse. Right? But you do want to stretch the muscle. You do want to warm up the muscle. You do want to try and work on all the structures around because there's going to be all kinds of compensation. So this you will see 100% guaranteed. So again, it's an abnormal bone formation in soft tissue. You need, so you could probably break that down from the word. So the other word for it is heterotrophic oss ossification. HO is what they'll call it. So those are AKAs, they're synonyms for each other. Cause, single or multiple traumas, okay? So you need to know the pathogenesis. Once there's blood in the soft tissue, body doesn't know how to deal with it and it will start to lay down a bone matrix and calcium and it'll ossify the area. So again, this could take a few weeks. So two to three weeks before you actually feel that hard mass where there's actually bone development into the soft tissue. So it could take a bit of time. What is it feeling for? Well, you're feeling for inflammation, right? So you're warm, your heat, your loss of function, your range of motion will be minimized, obviously, and you're gonna feel for a hard lump, a hard mass. Those are classic. There has to be some kind of trauma. If there was never a trauma, then this would not be on my list, right? If there's some kind of mechanism of injury, then obviously this is on my list. 
So x-rays and ultrasounds are usually the, they're the cheapest also, but they're usually the easiest ways to be able to diagnose this. On an ultrasound, you should be able to not see bone, right, in soft tissue. And on an x-ray, where it should be black in soft tissue, you'll start to see some white. So that is pretty much the easiest way. Bone scans, the reason it's the best method is because you will see the bone developing. Now this is the problem. What's the problem with x-rays? Uh, okay, definitely radiation. Is there another problem with x-rays? Why is it that some fractures aren't caught because of the x-rays? Like they get an x-ray. You need 30% bone destruction before you can see it on an x-ray. 30%. So if you don't have enough calcium deposit into the soft tissue, x-ray's not going to pick it up. So a bone scan will see heat. It'll see development of tissue. So that's why it's the best method. It's just not the cheapest and easiest. So this one you should go away on its own as long as you don't keep re-injuring it. So if you decide to treat it and do deep techniques, it's not gonna resolve on its own. It's just gonna keep getting worse, right? But don't not treat this. And teach the patient that if they continue to do their sports, they need to create more padding in the area. They need to avoid that area. They need to avoid pressure on the area. Like don't sleep on that side. And you're gonna educate them about all the things they need to do to be able to avoid further trauma. Because further trauma is just gonna make it worse. So my question was, why do you not do a lot of general sweetest massage over the bruise? Any bruise, so you have a contusion. Someone yeah, comes in with a contusion. If there's a contusion, are you, my question is, are you 100% sure there's no more bleeding in the soft tissue? So then, if you did a lot of general Swedish techniques, you could be creating more bleeding into the tissue. Which, if you create more bleeding into the tissue, this could end up happening, my acidosis So we don't do a lot of work on a bruise that's fairly acute because we're not 100% sure that the bleeding stopped. Now, if this bruise is not very big and it's been three, four days, chances are it's fine. If it's a huge bruise and it was a massive trauma, in three to four days, there could still be bleeding. Don't do it, right? And this is the reason why you don't do it. So, this is the Achilles tendon. Is there supposed to be white on an x-ray? So, ossification right here. Soft tissue between, so your thenar eminences and your adductor pollicis and all the muscles that are here. Is there supposed to be a white mass in here? Yeah, myositis significans. Look at this. So this is your elbow. This is the head of the radius. And this is your articular capsule as well as the lateral collateral ligament. Is that supposed to be like a mess of white? Myositis significans. Okay. So easy to be able to recognize on an x-ray as long as it's progressive enough. At the beginning, an x-ray won't pick this up. Okay. Polymyalgia rheumatica. I need to backtrack. Did you guys talk about peripheral vascular diseases last semester? Yeah. Awesome. So in peripheral vascular diseases, you learned about three different conditions. You learned about polyarteritis nodosa, which is nodules in arteries, like inflammatory processes inside the artery that will actually decrease the lumen of the artery and cause pain, right? 
and then you learned about Berger's disease or thrombocytic obliterans, and that's classically males, and it's really associated with smoking. You stop smoking, symptoms go away, and this causes claudication, intermittent claudication, classic, right? And then temporal arteritis. What did you guys learn about temporal arteritis? Oh, right, so it's an inflammation of the temporal arteries, so headaches is a very classic symptom. And what is very related to temporal arteritis? That is one of the biggest side effects or complications, yes, is blindness. But did you learn that there's a relationship with another condition? So 20 to 50% of people with giant cell arteritis will have polymyalgia rheumatica. Or 20 to 50% of people with polymyalgia rheumatica will develop giant cell arteritis. So that's really important. So you know what poly or what uh, temporal arteritis looks like. Oftentimes it's an inflammation of the temporal artery. People complain about pain, significant pain, and it's usually in the head. So polymyalgia rheumatica, let's break down that word. So poly means many, myalgia, muscle pain, and then rheumatica is a rheumatic condition like arthritis. Okay, so when you break down that, you're thinking many muscle pain that looks like arthritis. This pretty much gives you the classic presentation of polymyalgia rheumatica. So it has either shoulder or and pelvic girdle pain. Because it's muscle pain that feels like arthritis. It's actually the muscles that are problematic, but they cross joints. So it presents like the patients have arthritis. Okay, this is classic in older individuals. So 60s, 70s, 80s, really, really, really classic. And they're gonna come in and they're gonna complain about shoulder pain and or hip pain or pelvic pain. It's not the knees, it's not the ankles, it's not the elbows, it's not the wrists. It can progress to that if it goes on for years and years and years. But it is shoulders and pelvis, classic in older individuals. I actually had a patient come in and this is what I think he had and it took a year and a half before he got diagnosed. Because they thought it was bursitis, they ruled that out. Then they thought it was trochanteric bursitis, then they ruled that out. Then they thought he had OA, osteoarthritis, and then they ruled that out. So it took a year and a half before he actually got diagnosed with polymyalgia rheumatica. Which, corticosteroids, six months, almost complete remission. So he could have been pain free so much longer than he was, but anyways. So usually if they, they'll say six months to a year. I say usually in six months, most people have really minimum to no pain. It could take up to a year. Some people will stay on them for two years. Um, but typically within six months, you'll notice significant, significant improvement, which is one of the ways this is diagnosed because there's no test for this. There's no biopsy. There's no x-ray. There's no CT scan. There's no blood work to be able to truly prove this. It's muscle pain. So usually the course of treatment, if this is what it's believed to be, you rule out everything else, you rule out your arthritis, 
you rule out your neurological conditions, you rule out your musculoskeletal conditions. If everything else has been ruled out, then give them six months of corticosteroids, they have significant improvement, it can turn to polymyalgia rheumatica, okay? All right, so know that it's more common in older individuals, that's very, very important. It is more common in females, obviously the older you get, and it is more common in Caucasians, so that's, oh, and it is very linked to giant cell arteritis. So if you know someone has giant cell arteritis and they're not coming in with shoulder pain and hip pain, even if there's a mechanism of injury, this should be part of your DDX list. Okay? All right, so it's a gradual onset of pain around the shoulders or the hips. It usually starts unilateral, but it always becomes bilateral. So one side will be worse than the other, one side will develop before the other, but it always affects both sides eventually. So if you caught it really early, it could be unilateral. It will always become bilateral. This is the hallmark, meaning this is the one thing if a patient tells you, you should be like, ah! I have a pain in the morning so bad, I can't get out of bed, I can't roll, I can't dress, I can't bathe, I can't brush my teeth, I can't move. But after about an hour or so, it gets better. I still have pain, but it gets significantly better. Um, it's because everything's gotten warmed up, really. Now, you're gonna, because next week we're gonna talk about rheumatoid arthritis, we're gonna talk about osteoarthritis. They usually will be anywhere between half an hour to an hour worst thing in the morning or when you've been sitting down. Prolonged inactivity, they're gonna start to have a lot of pain until they move around. So with OA, it's 30 minutes. This is over an hour. So again, you use these clinical indications to be able to start to get an idea of what the conditions might be, okay? So that's, that's classic, you need to know that. So if they're older, they're complaining of shoulder hip pain, it's usually bilateral, and they're saying the worst thing, I can't do anything in the morning, my wife has to dress me, you're gonna see a video, my wife has to dress me, my wife has to feed me, my wife has to brush my teeth. That's classic for polymyalgia rheumatica, okay? So it's oftentimes misdiagnosed because there's no clinical criteria, there's no test to be able to say you have this. So oftentimes these people are being told it's chronic fatigue, it's fibromyalgia, it's depression, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, blood work could be helpful, but it's really non-specific. So really the best thing to be able to fully, fully diagnose this is your history and your treatment isn't working, are corticosteroids working? And if they are, then Ding, 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 ding. That's what we're thinking, okay? And that's fine. Let's just, so let's watch. So there's two videos here. Oh yeah, we got time. Um, so we'll watch this one and then we'll watch an actual case. It sounds like nothing most people have ever heard of. Polymyalgia rheumatica. But more than 700,000 Americans learned about it the hard way. It causes sudden onset of pain and stiffness, mostly in the shoulders, back of the neck, around the hips. An inflammatory condition is usually found in people over 50. It's painful and sometimes disabling. I've had patients that have gone sometimes more than a month without being diagnosed and they've actually come in here in a wheelchair. Most people feel the pain in their muscles, but it's actually the joints that are involved. Doctors aren't sure what triggers polymyalgia rheumatica, although it is an autoimmune disorder, meaning the body turns on itself. While it may be fast and furious, it is also treatable. The, the diagnosis is made when we implement the corticosteroid, 
exactly and we see how the patient responds. And usually the symptoms resolve within 72 hours very quickly. Patients stay on medications for up to a year or longer. They must be monitored for long-term effects. If we're able to wean the patient off slowly and off completely without any return of the symptoms, about 60% of the patients can uh, eliminate it for good. Some people experience a relapse and return to treatment, again with a fast turnaround. A lot of our patients, when we diagnose them, they, they have never heard of this. Then all of a sudden, they start meeting people that they've actually have it. If treated appropriately, there's mostly a happy ending for this friendly fire disorder. For Lee Memorial Health System, I'm Amy Osher. Okay, so this is a classic presentation. He might be a little hard to understand, um, but this is classic, classic presentation. So tell me about how this started and what symptoms you had to, at the beginning. Symptoms that I, I, I see uh, as a blower. The snowblower. The snowblower. And the next day, the pain came. It was a lot of snow, very heavy. And, uh, Where was the pain? The pain in their shoulder. Both shoulders. Was it more one than the other? Yeah. The left one was the first. Okay. And then it comes out to my hips and comes out to my right foot. Okay. And what's happened in the past month then? Okay, so if he came into you saying that, what was the first thing on your thought process? Sounds MSK to me, right? So you're probably going to want to rule out things like maybe a tendonitis or a bursitis in the shoulders, and then he probably maybe had hip flexor contractures, who knows, strain of some sort, but it sounds very MSK, which is why it goes undiagnosed for so long. <laughs> Is there a time of day that it seemed to hurt more? In the morning. What happens in the morning? In the morning, when I get up, my wife has to help me up. Help and you out of bed? Yeah, and, uh, and then uh, I had to take them all because they hurt so bad. And a couple of hours after, it wasn't so bad. But it still hurt. Okay. And it still hurt now. Yeah. And, and you're having trouble getting dressed? Yes, I can. So my wife had to do it. Your wife has to help you. Yeah. Help me. And bathing? Pardon? And bathing, washing yourself? Oh, or? I can. She has to help me. Okay. And um, what about turning over in bed? Oh, that's the worst thing. I can't. Why not? I lay down on my back. I have to stay there because I hurt too much. Okay. I can't put pressure at all on my shoulder. Have you lost any weight? Yes, I did. Uh, about 20 pounds. Over how, how long a period of time? 20 or 30 pounds, you think? 29. About, uh, yeah, I guess uh, exactly the number, right? Well, I started before that, before it hurt. So the weight loss started before you started having pain? Yeah. And then after I had pain, I couldn't eat, right? Okay. Have you had any fever? No. Or you were a hard working man, you said you were a welder? Yes, a welder. And where did you weld? Uh, yeah, the hospital here. This hospital? Maybe I can just ask you to lie down for a second. Put your feet up. 
there, okay, and lie on your back there. And then, uh, and then can you get out of bed for me? Can you get out of bed by yourself now? Okay, so your wife, you can help him up. I like that you can help him up now. Because if they can't get out of bed, uh, how about walking? Do you have if they can't get out of bed, does that really give you an indication of a bursitis? Because no. subacromial bursitis is actually one of the things that gets misdiagnosed for this. No, I understand not being able to lay on your shoulder. I, be, I understand that. I understand not being able to lift their arm above their head, which they have problems with. That could also make you think GH issues. But, he's, he's but dick. the guy told him he couldn't go to bed, and then he makes him lie down and do it. <laughs> Honestly, that is part of your functional assessment, though, right? You get them to do things that they tell you they functionally can't do. Because you want to be able to see, can they do it and it's just hard? Or is it truly that they can't do it? Because how many people tell you they can't do things, but then they do it, it's just that it's painful? All the time. So unfortunately, this is part of your assessment, right? After you do range of motion, you do your rule outs, then you do your functional testing. And your functional testing is getting them to do things they've told you that you have a hard time with, that they have a hard time with. So, but that, like if you saw that, that would kind of rule out shoulder MSK issues, right? Having trouble walking? No, I walk, okay. It's, it's sort of getting up and out, eh? <laughs> I'm trying to do this for me. Do that as far as you possibly can, okay? The other one? one and the other one? That's as far as you can go on that one? Okay, cool. Okay. Alright, good. Okay, now we'll bend this up a bit here. Can you pull against me as hard as you can now? Okay, that hurts there. Okay, now what about this one? Can we pull on this one too as hard as you can? Okay, now push against me as hard as you can? Okay, you're a strong welder, you're so strong today. Yeah, that's perfect. Push again? That's a priority. Is that weak or is it hurting? It hurts. So C-reactive protein, let's go back for a second. So your C-reactive protein right here um, usually shows inflammation. So that's a classic sign of inflammation. And your ESR basically shows that your body's fighting something. So, I mean those blood works typically wouldn't be there if you just had a simple MSK condition, right? I just started taking uh, four pills a day. Yeah. So what happened after you took the pills? The next day I had no pain. The next day? Yeah, I took a night. Yes. The next morning I got out of the bed. Like the thing was there. Really? Yeah. Now this is this is a week now yeah. since I saw you. Yeah. So how much better do you think you are? Every day is okay as long as I took the pills. And they're okay. Before I wanted you to do with both arms like to make a touchdown, you know, like okay, okay. can you can you do that? Yeah. You can put them right over like that. How long did it take before you could do that? After oh, a couple pills? of days. Just a couple of days. Yeah, so I don't feel no pain. Good. And then can you get up? Oh yeah. Much better. Ta-da! <laughs> Pretty good. It is.
So that is a classic presentation of someone with polymyalgia rheumatica. Classic, classic, classic. But you can kind of see how it would be easily misdiagnosed with a history for a musculoskeletal condition either of the hip or the shoulder, right? Yeah, and when they, come, when they come off the prednisone, it will be, like they will decrease because it's just water retention. So they, it will decrease. Um, the problem with this is if you had a comorbidity of something like osteoporosis, so let's say you were a female, you were osteopenic or osteoporotic, prednisone increases your risk of increasing osteoclastic activity. So at that point, your professional, your medical professional will have to make the decision do you go on the medication to help with the condition, because it will make a huge difference for the condition, knowing that there's an increased risk of creating more osteopenia into osteoporosis, or making the osteoporosis even worse, because that is one of the side effects, right? Can you take like Fosamax with? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you can, um, but it's still going to increase your osteoclastic activity, right? So it just puts you at greater risk. But pros, cons, what's more important? people probably are going to choose to go on the medication, especially if they can do their ADLs again, right? Their activities of daily living. So. Okay, so that's it for today. So next week, I've posted the notes for next week. So it is arthritis, arthritis, arthritis. And I'm telling you right now, everything we're going to cover, you're going to see in your practice. Because I currently have a psoriatic arthritis patient, I have a rheumatoid arthritis patient, I've got two ankylosing spondylitis patients. So it's all stuff you will 100% see. So please read through it first. I'm gonna tell you a lot of the cases are very significant to the arthritis. Your test is probably gonna be very significant to the arthritis because you're gonna see that stuff for sure in practice. Um, yeah. Any questions about what we did today? Okay, cool. So my apologies, I could not upload um, the lecture. I finally got it uploaded this morning, so it did get uploaded this morning, last week's lecture.